0: The situation is
1: escalating as Diane Wilson had locked herself by the neck to a fishing boat blocking the entrance of the Army Corps. The police have just arrived
0: and Diane Wilson um, is on her 36th day of hunger strike. She hasn't eaten a thing, that's her in her white fishing boots. That is her coffin that she brought over here to the Army Corps of Engineers. She said, to kill the bay is to kill the fishermen and kill a community.
2: I was arrested because we did a lockdown right in front of the U.S. Corps of Engineers in Galveston, Texas. And we had a boat, we had a motor, we had a coffin, we were blocking. The entrance to try to get Captain Timothy Vail's attention because he is the one in the US Corps of Engineers who can revoke that project and he can at the very least force a supplemental environmental impact study. So it was trying to get his attention.
1: Environmental justice is a talking point in every politician's toolkit, but do you ever wonder where it all began? On this week's Throughline, we're taking you back to 1978, where a fight against a toxic dump in North Carolina started the environmental justice movement. Join NPR's Climate Week and listen to Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.
0: If you're listening to this show, you are probably at least climate curious. And one thing that I get asked all the time is, okay, I understand that this is a big problem. We need to act now, but what can I do? The climate crisis can feel like such a huge, overwhelming problem, which is why this April, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore and The Climate Reality are holding a free training on what's happening with the climate and what we can personally do. And actually, I'm gonna be part of that training. It all happens in New York City, April 12th through the 14th, and it's gonna be big, really big. If you wanna know what climate change means for your future, your career, your part of the country or the world, this training is for you. You'll get to hear straight from former US Vice President Al Gore, and a lineup of incredible thought leaders, scientists, experts, and more at the top of their fields. I'll be doing a training on climate disinformation as part of this. You'll come away with a real understanding of what's happening to the planet and the skills to make a difference. If you complete the training, you'll join the Climate Reality Leadership Corps, a community of nearly 50,000 changemakers all over the world. To learn more and apply, visit climaterealityproject.org slash new-york. That's climaterealityproject.org slash new-york. I hope to see you there. This is Diane Wilson the shrimp boat captain turned environmental activist you met in the first episode of this series. Diane still lives in her hometown, Point Comfort, Texas. And after fighting for decades to save her local bay and the fishermen who depend on it, she won a big lawsuit against petrochemical giant Formosa. It came with a $50 million settlement. But just as she was working with the community to put that money to good use, a new problem appeared on the horizon.
2: Basically, it was a little-known pipeline company. Uh, They call themselves Max Midstream, and they wanted to put an oil export hub in, and they had the money to do the dredging because they needed the dredging because they couldn't get their these big ships in to haul all of this crude oil out.
0: The lawsuit against Formosa was just settled in December 2019. It took a while for the details of the settlement to be hammered out, and by then, the COVID-19 pandemic had taken hold in the U.S. The local fishing community in Point Comfort had only just started to meet up in person and talk about their plans for this sustainable fishing co-op when they had a new problem. Max Midstream, a pipeline startup based in Houston, quietly purchased a 10-year-old export terminal at the port in Point Comfort in late 2020. The company had only just launched itself, and the export terminal was one of its big initial purchases. But despite the fact that it's only a year old, Max Midstream is making some big moves. In 2021, it announced a bold plan, a one billion dollar expansion of the Seahawk Terminal in Point Comfort. Max Midstream major oil pipeline coming to come. Max Midstream ships first crude cargo from new terminal. Forget about fish houses. They told local newspapers they're going to turn this port into a quote major oil export center, connecting oil from Texas's primary fracking centers, the Eagle Ford shale and the Permian Basin to the European markets. But to do all that they don't just have to build more docks and expand the storage facilities they need to deepen and widen the port itself and that means dredging the bay
2: and it's one of if not the biggest it's one of the biggest mercury underwater superfund sites in the whole united states their own uh, confidential documents admitted they lost 1,200,700 1,200,700 pounds of mercury, and they're sitting right here on this bay. Where I'm sitting right here on the bay, there's three mercury contamination signs, don't eat the fish, don't eat the crabs, and the level of uh, mercury in the redfish are the same level they were back in 1997. So it hasn't improved at all,
0: Not only is dredging likely to stir up mercury in the bay, Wilson says it will destroy a marine ecosystem that's barely hanging on as it is.
2: They are going to bury, smother, 700 acres of oyster reefs. They are going to smother these seagrasses. Then when they start deepening it and widening it, they will, all of the salt water from the Gulf will come rushing into this bay system that has a very particular balance on its salinity, for all of these, the crabs, the fish, the shrimp, you name it, this is where they're born in these upper bays. And it will devastate, it will literally devastate the fish, fisheries here. It will, it will totally uh, set this bay back like it's never been set back before.
0: The Port Authority thinks it's a great idea. In a press release announcing the project, Calhoun Port Director Charles Hausman said, This will transform our port into a major oil exporting center, and it will transform our area with new jobs and new growth. Max Midstream has promised to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in the project and create hundreds of new jobs. Most of their initial permits were fast-tracked. But then, Diane Wilson caught wind of the plan. Tell me a little bit about what prompted the hunger strike that you're on right now.
2: Oh, okay. Well, you know, I just finished the lawsuit against Formosa and we got $50 million for environmental projects, and we put $20 million into a sustainable fishery co-op that uh, for the local fishermen. And here you have the Navigation District going into partnership with this little-known pipeline guy, and they're going to dredge a ship channel. It will totally set this bay back like it's never been set back before. And the community of fishermen that were that were trying just to survive, I mean, this is their last chance at surviving. It will wipe them out. I mean, the communities where these fishermen live, you know, they'll be gone. They're almost gone now. And this was this 20 million that we put into this co-op was a chance at reviving our community. I mean, it's going to devastate it.
0: Wilson is 72 now. And in April, she went on a hunger strike in protest of the dredging project. More than a month later, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality announced that due to significant interest, it would hold a public meeting to discuss the air permit max midstream needs for the project to move forward.
3: This public meeting is for an
1: application by Max Midstream Texas LLC. The proposed permit number is 1629.
0: If granted, the permit would allow Max Midstream to increase greenhouse gas emissions by more than 100,000 tons per year.
2: Hi there, uh, this is Diane Wilson, and I want Max Midstream to be forewarned that we will not give up even if TCEQ ignores what we have to say and gives this permit. You can bet your baby on that. We are not giving
0: up. This kind of thing where you win one environmental fight only to run smack into another one is incredibly common. Sharon Levine is dealing with it over in Louisiana too. She had a big win on the proposed Formosa plant there. It's on hold until at least 2022, while the Army Corps rethinks its permits. But now, she's fighting the expansion of a methanol plant in St. James. Here she is at a permit hearing for the expansion.
3: In 2014, South Louisiana Methanol got approval to build its methanol plant. That area was existing residential-slash-future-industrial. In 2018, Clyde Cooper had this whole area changed into residential growth. South Louisiana Methanol is trying to sneak this expansion into the 2014 plan. Our parish council can can stop this. If this happens, it will expand in a residential area, and it is expanded beyond its land use approval and requires new parish approval. If this facility is built, it will destroy Welcome Park. Our children will not have a park because they will not be able to breathe the air.
0: This game of whack-a-mole is one that activists are all too familiar with. And it's what we're going to look at this episode. It's the finale of part one in our Bridge to Nowhere season, coming up after this quick break.
1: But I think there's enough of a market trend for the fossil fuel industry to recognize that they're going to just sell less product.
0: This is Judith Enk a former EPA regional administrator and the president of Beyond Plastics. In a lot of ways, the current plastic build-out is the perfect example of the whack-a-mole problem.
1: And so they've teamed up with their partners in the chemical industry to make petrochemical production their plan B. And this is unfolding around the country, most notably in Louisiana, Texas, Texas, and then the first big ethane cracker plant, the new generation of ethane crackers coming online in Pennsylvania, the Shell facility, uh, later this year, we also see proposals in the Ohio River Valley. So without you know one vote by the public, without much transparency, billions of dollars in investment is proceeding, relying on... Waste gas from hydrofracking sites being transported by new pipelines to new ethane cracker facilities that will be working hard to transform waste fracked gas into the new main ingredient for single use plastic packaging.
0: So as activists, journalists, scientists, and more have raised awareness about climate change and the role that fossil fuels play in exacerbating it, and as politicians have come around to the idea of regulating emissions, the industry has just found a new market for its product. It's not just the whack-a-mole problem on steroids, it also reveals that the industry's story, that it's just supplying a demand, is a lie. And it brings together the two industries most notorious for fighting regulation, fossil fuels and chemicals, together on the same side.
1: The petrochemical industry fights tooth and nail on any legislative proposal that will reduce the demand for packaging. Something as simple as a city proposing a plastic bag ban or A county wanting to ban single-use polystyrene foam food packaging. The American Chemistry Council and their state affiliates show up in force sharing inaccurate information, working literally at the city council level to try to block anything that suppresses demand for single-use plastic. And
0: they're effective. It might seem like America is awash in bag bands and straw
1: restrictions, but in fact, not so much. We do have about 1,000 local laws on the books and state laws on the books to reduce the demand for plastic, but we have far more communities that have done nothing to reduce the demand for plastic. You know, it's a funny perception thing.
0: And just like the natural gas industry has been pushing preemptive laws to stop cities and counties from passing gas bans, yes, preemptive bans on bans, there's been a push in some state and local governments to preemptively ban plastic bag bans too. Another place this kind of preemptive law is showing up is in the state governments that are trying to pass bans on masking mandates.
1: The other thing I observe is that when you do get a good policy on the books, the industry lobbyists are very active in wanting to have loopholes or poison pills. For instance, something as simple as plastic bag bands, what they push for is thicker plastic bags rather than film plastic bags. And then they they lie and they say it can be reused 125 times and that never happens.
0: Inc. encourages activists to pay close attention to the details and offers model bills on the Beyond Plastics site. But she's already anticipating the next mole to whack, exports. Remember last episode we heard from investigative journalist Lawrence Carter at Unearthed about what one of ExxonMobil's lobbyists said about this.
3: Keith McCoy talks about how they want to take this kind of cheap feedstock and actually rather than manufacture the plastic in the US to kind of turn it into liquefied natural gas, ship it over to um, petrochemical facilities that they have in Asia and in Australia so that they can, you know, really crank up plastic sales in those places.
1: Oh. Inc. is already seeing that strategy play out. The other thing is, I think the petrochemical industry is really counting on a lot of exports. There are some facilities that are being designed just for export of pre-production pellets or LNG exports. And so they are banking on large new markets in Asia and Africa to export the main ingredients of plastic. I think over time, we will pass a number of very strong state bills to reduce plastic. Not sure we've got the political power to do anything very significant just yet at the federal level, but we'll have some good state bills on the books and that'll reduce demand. And then you see this giant uh, pivot to export. And from a climate change perspective, the, these are global emissions. So whether you have ethane cracker facilities emitting gargantuan amounts of carbon in Pennsylvania or Europe, it's all going to affect our climate internationally.
0: So now we have some insight into what this big giant LNG export terminal in Point Comfort might be doing. Meanwhile, the industry has successfully painted plastic as an individual consumer problem, and often as a mom problem, just Buy your kids bamboo utensils and aluminum straws. Moms, problem solved. The fossil fuel and chemical industries have also done a phenomenal job convincing the public that plastic is absolutely indispensable and that until there's some sort of alternative to it, we're hooked on petrochemicals and particularly on plastic, whether you like it or not.
1: The alternative is to simply use less plastic. And that may mean a shift toward reusables and refillables, which is terrific. That is job producing. It could be simply getting rid of some packaging altogether. You go to any supermarket and it's a plastic nightmare and you have layers and layers of plastic, a great deal of of which is not actually holding the product. And then, you know, the third alternative is really basic alternatives to plastic, like recycled cardboard, recycled glass, recycled aluminum and metal. You know, there's this odd dynamic where people are waiting for the next big breakthrough on alternatives to plastics. And, you know, I'm a big fan of using mycelium, for instance, mushrooms rather than petroleum-based plastic. But that's been slow going but the alternative to plastic is in your kitchen um, pantry right now. It's <laughs> cereal box. It's the metal can of soup. What I'm really shocked at, I my I have one kid and he's all grown up, but I'm not in the baby food aisle much. I just skip the aisle. Well, one of the most terrifying things is going down the baby food aisle in the supermarket massive shift to plastic, including plastic pouches, ironically, often to give your darling baby organic food in a plastic pouch. A lot of that could be cardboard, glass, metal. So it's not like the electricity sector, where I would say instead of petroleum-based plastics, use bio-based plastics. It's really using less plastic. and, And we can do that. You know, we don't need a Manhattan project on this.
0: But Ink is quick to point out that simply using less plastic is not something consumers are often given the choice to do at least not easily or cheaply.
1: Voluntary solutions just aren't working. I mean, I do encourage people to try to use less plastic, but often it's impossible. I mean, I try to avoid plastic and I've got it all over my kitchen because there are not alternatives in the supermarket or even when I have time to go to the food co-op, there's often not alternatives. But, you know, it's fascinating to watch the messaging machine of the fossil fuel industry for years talk to us about reducing our own carbon footprint, shifting responsibility to individuals. I'm now seeing the phrase plastic footprint and a concerted effort to shift the narrative toward all of us need to play a role and reduce our use of plastic. Well, good luck with that. It's It's virtually impossible.
0: So rather than recommending a particular type of straw or reusable water bottle, she suggests a different type of individual action.
1: From an environmental perspective and a jobs perspective, a really big push to refillables and reusables is needed, especially in restaurants and cafes. And there's a feisty little group called Upstream. And if you go to upstreamsolutions.org, they are just really providing wonderful information on how businesses can shift to reusables and refillables. And it often saves them money if they can make the initial investment in dishwashing equipment.
0: And if you want to push for policy changes, Inc. says focus on state legislators or better yet, the EPA.
1: But a lot of people don't realize, and I didn't fully appreciate it, to be honest, until I worked at the EPA during the Obama administration, is the state agencies hold most of the cards. The way most of the federal anti-pollution statutes, like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the way they work is those programs are delegated to the states. So EPA kind of provides the floor, often not the ceiling, and provides not enough money to the states. And Richard Nixon's theory when he established the EPA 52 years ago was that the states are closer to the people, in a better position to really assess impacts. I don't disagree with that. But over the years, there's been this terrible culture at the EPA, including when I was there, to defer to the states. And if the Biden-Harris administration is going to defer to the state of Louisiana, the state of Texas, the state of Ohio, the state of Pennsylvania, we are in the soup when it comes to the petrochemical build-out because the states are very supportive, mostly because of the political influence of these special interests. And then the public stated reason is because of job creation. But if you've got Louisiana, Texas, and Ohio in the driver's seat, we are not in a good spot. And this is where the EPA needs to exercise their oversight authority, which they can easily do if they want to tackle climate change.
0: That's it for this time and for part one of season six. We'll be back soon with parts two and three about the natural gas industry's anti-regulation tactics. And what happened when first fracking and then plastic came to one rural county on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border? But first, kids are going back to school, and we've partnered with our pals over at Earther to bring you a series about the fossil fuel industry's role in shaping education. Not just science education, but civics, social studies, political science, economics, all the things that really set the parameters on how a society functions and what sorts of solutions we even allowed to think about. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Drilled is an original production of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. The show is reported, written, and hosted by me, Amy Westervelt. Our producer this season is Juliana Bradley. Our editor is Julia Ritchie. Our theme song this season is Death Song by B. Beeman. Additional music for the season composed by Elliot Peltzman. Our artwork for the season is done by Matthew Fleming. Our First Amendment attorney is James Wheaton at the First Amendment Project. You can find additional reporting and photos for this season on our Twitter feed at We Are Drilled or online at drillednews.com. If you're a fan of the show, please consider supporting us in two ways. One, if you want to spend some money and get some extra bonus content and early episodes, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash drilled. You can also support us by giving us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps us find new listeners and combat the army of climate denier trolls that are constantly trying to tank our ratings. Thanks for doing that and we'll see you next week.